1977, the band Kansas made popular what became their most famous song. It was a ballad that really is an expression of what life is like in this world without God. It goes like this. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes, a curiosity, dust in the wind. All, all they are is dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Everything is dust in the wind. That could be the theme song for the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week we began to study this Old Testament book of wisdom that's found right after Proverbs in your Old Testament. It's a book that perhaps was written by Solomon. That's what the general consensus is. The son of David, he's identified as. A man who had had a world of experience in, in his old age, looks back, back upon that experience and tries to evaluate it in the light of the things that he knows to be true. Both revealed truth to him from God and truth that is observable under the sun even without God. What Solomon does is to write from a vantage point as if there is no God. What is this world really like if there's no God? Solomon is more honest than many of the atheists in our day who pretend that they don't believe in God but then want to borrow things that can only come from God to make their lives work. And Solomon examines the world the good, the bad, the things he's accomplished, the things he's experienced, and he says if there's no God, then it is all vanity. What he does is he looks back upon his life, his successes, his experiences, and he tries to evaluate them on their own terms. He considers wisdom, he considers wealth, relationships. He considers accomplishments in the light of the unchanging realities of this world, and compared to those realities, in the light of those realities, here's what he concludes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Life without God is fleeting. Life without God really is like dust in the wind. Today we continue our study of this book, and we're going to look at the opening section of it that teaches us specifically that life without God, even with hard work, is meaningless. So I invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and open up because we're just going to walk our way through several of the statements that are found in the opening of this book. Our text is found in the first chapter, beginning in verse 3. We're going to go down to verse 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's found on page 553. 553. If you're not used to looking at a Bible... Reading the Bible, let me just uh, alert you that the big numbers on the page are chapter numbers, chapter divisions. The little numbers are verse divisions. And so we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 3, and we're going to work our way down through verse 11. Last week we looked at the first two verses kind of to introduce Ecclesiastes to us for this study. 
We noted that the author is identified as the preacher. The preacher, the actual Hebrew word behind that word preacher is koheleth. And some have just taken that word and treated it almost like a, a formal name. And they call the author koheleth. And that's appropriate to do. But the, the word itself means one who gathers people together. Specifically in the context of an assembly or a congregation of God's people in order to teach them. So teacher, preacher, that's a good designation for him. And that's what he calls himself. Is what we will refer to him to as well as we work our way through this passage. So look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. Let me read down through verse 11. These are the verses that will frame our thinking this morning. So hear the word of the Lord as I read it aloud. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, where there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it can be said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Without God, people do not profit from all their toil. That's what the preacher is telling us in this open, opening section of his book. He, he does it first by way of a rhetorical question, and then he builds arguments to support that main point. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The word gain is a business word. It comes from the world, world of commerce. It means literally that which is left over. So when you do a deal, you hope to have something left over that becomes for you gain or profit. I pointed out last week that this phrase, under the sun, which occurs nearly 30 times in this book, is a reminder that the perspective that the author is taking is a horizontal one. It is one that factors out God that doesn't consider what God's revealed about Himself. It just looks honestly at what's going on. So it's the world as it is taken on its own terms. So the author reminds us that when he thinks about life as it is, when he considers this world without any regard to God, it's vanity, it's fleeting, it's empty, it's not permanent, and it can be meaningless. The rhetorical question then in verse 3 is really making a specific point. Without God, people do not profit from their toil. If this life is all there is, if this is all that we can hope for, if everything that you live for is found under the sun, then all your hard work, all your toil is for nothing. It doesn't profit you in the end anything. 
Now to support this point, the preacher launches into a poem. He first addresses the point from nature itself, and then he does it from human experience. And we see this in verses 4 through 11. If you look at verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, you'll see how he calls upon nature, the way things are, things that can be observable, measurable, to support his point. In verse 4, he says, A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Throughout the ages, the earth just continues on and on and on. In other words, despite the passage of time, the most fundamental things in life, they do not change. This is a point he's going to reiterate in verses 9, 10, and 11, as we will see in a moment. In the 4th century, an early church father by the name of Jerome said this, What is more vain than this vanity, that the earth, which was made for humans, stays, but humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into the dust. I mean, every generation has its hopes, its dreams, its goals, its desires, the things they hope to accomplish. And yet, when you look at human nature, you look at the history of humanity, and compare the world we have today with the world that has existed at any point in the past, you see that ultimately, the world pretty much goes on the way it's always been. Human nature does not change. And that's true, despite the seemingly perennial optimism that every generation has. On August the 14th, 1914, at the very beginning of World War I, H.G. Wells published an article entitled, The War That Will End War, in which he said, this, the greatest of all wars, is not just another war, it is the last war. It's what he hoped, right? It's what caused Woodrow Wilson to call World War I the war that ends all wars. But have all wars been ended? Not at all. Will all wars be ended at any point in human history? Not at all. Consider what President Lyndon Johnson said in his State of the Union address in January of 1964. He uttered these words. This administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. In the more than 50 years since he said those words, U.S. taxpayers have spent over $22 trillion in this war on poverty. And yet, as a recent DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society reports, a significant portion of the population is now less capable of self-sufficiency than it was when the war on poverty began. Nothing's changed. You know, even the so-called generation gap that every rising generation thinks is new and unique to them, and then older generations, we look and we think, man, we were never like that. Even that's always been the same. Listen to what this old man observed about the generation coming after him. He says, the children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect to their elders. That was Socrates 2,400 years ago. Nothing changes. Generations come, generations go. The earth, the world, 
Human nature stays the same. Throughout the ages, the earth simply continues on in an undeniable repetitiveness. The basic elements of this world testify to that as well. And so the wise man, Koheleth, the preacher, calls upon the sun, the wind, and the sea to testify to his point. The sun, in verse 5, he says, continues on as it always has. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. It comes up and races across the sky and then disappears to our vision and then it reappears as if on cue. Repeats the process all over. And it's kept this up day after day after day after day from the dawn of history. So the same sun that rose on you and me this morning rose on Socrates 2,400 years ago. Or consider the wind. The wind seems somewhat more free and unrestrained than the sun, but it too moves in a ceaseless repetition as he says, around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. It never reaches a destination. It never settles. It's never satisfied. Though there's something wild and seemingly unpredictable about the wind, the jet streams continue to flow day after day, week after week, in ceaseless repetition, and nothing is really gained by all of its activity. In verse 7, he calls upon the seas, the rivers, all streams, he writes, run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Now, he may have had in mind the, the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth, and the Jordan River flows into it, and various streams at different seasons of the year also flow into it, and yet despite all of the flow into the sea, it never gets full. And that's true of every sea, every ocean. I looked it up this week, and at its peak, 70,000 gallons a second flow from the Caloosahatchee into the Gulf. The Gulf doesn't ever seem to get full. Nor does the Atlantic or Pacific or any of the oceans of the world. The point in all of these examples with sun and wind and seas is to demonstrate that without God, without consideration of God, nothing is to be gained even from great activity and incredible toil. Now, this is more clearly seen when you contrast the point of view of the writer of Ecclesiastes when he looks at life, even creation under the sun. You contrast his point of view to the point of view that we have given to us elsewhere in the Bible, elsewhere in the Old Testament, by those who are looking at creation, considering God. Now just take, for example, Psalm number 19. that says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims His handiwork. Day to day utters speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It goes on, The sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. You see, with faith, with belief in God, you look at the sun, you say, God is declaring His greatness in the heavens. 
you deny God, factor out God, just look at life under the sun, you say, day after day, same thing. No meaning, no purpose, nothing in it. It's vanity. If you know God, then you recognize and can appreciate His handiwork in the world. But if you deny God, or you forget Him, or remain ignorant of Him, then all you can honestly see is pointless. It's futile. There's no profit, even from your hard work. Creation itself, itself suggests that, that this is true by its endless repetition with no purpose. There's constant activity, but it just seems like the world is in a rut. Without God, it's like life is a cosmic treadmill, perpetual motion with no destination. It just is. Continues on, no gain. That's what we see when we look around at the natural forces on earth. But it's not just nature that demonstrates the futility of toil without God. The author goes on to invoke human experience and bring that testimony to the table. Human experience demonstrates that work, toil without God is futile. He does this in verse 8 by, first of all, considering our senses. All things are full of weariness. Just reiterating the main point. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So he calls upon the testimony of the mouth, the eye, and the ear. An honest assessment will see that the futility of life is a wearying thing. You talk about it all you want to. You can never finally explain it. You can look at it as closely and intelligently as you want to. You can use a microscope. You can use a telescope. And yet you'll not find anything different, changing, no matter how much you look. Though you listen as carefully as you can, there's always more to be heard. But it always utters the same basic message. Life and all of its activity, it's meaningless. It's dust in the wind. You know, I was reading this, it almost reminded me like the theme song from The Lion King, right? From the day we arrived on the planet and blinking stepped into the sun, there's more to see that can ever be seen, more to do that can ever be done, far too much to take in here, more to find that can ever be found, but the sun rolling high through the sapphire sky keeps great and small on endless round. It's the circle of life. You didn't know the movie based on Eastern mysticism could have so much in common with the Bible, did you? But if you're thinking about life under the sun, it's just an honest assessment. It's just reality. It's just admitting things that cannot be denied. Our mouths, our eyes, our ears all must admit that without God, all the activity in the world profits nothing. This is what our senses tell us. But he goes on and tells us that we also learn this from our observations. Beginning in verse 9. He says, in verses 9 and 10, when we stop and consider history, 
This is the same conclusion we must make. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Now, this is not a denial of new inventions. The author of Ecclesiastes would not deny that iPhones exist today and they didn't 30 years ago. Or that the internet exists and it didn't exist decades ago. He's not denying antibiotics. He's not denying any of the accomplishments that we look to and see as modern inventions that maybe make our lives more convenient. He's thinking on a more fundamental level than that. He's thinking of things in a world without God. What can things profit us in a world without God? Invent anything you want to. In a world without God, it really amounts to nothing. Life goes on as it always has been. Maybe with some sophisticated window dressing, and maybe with updated wardrobes, but it never really changes. Human nature doesn't change. The earth doesn't change. Babies are still born. People still grow old. They get sick. They die. Rivers still run into the ocean. Generations still go and come. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. Life simply goes on without anything that changes it at its most basic, fundamental level. And then in verse 11, he concludes his argument by thinking about forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. He writes, There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You know, some people spend a lot of time and energy thinking about leaving a legacy for their children, grandchildren. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, there's something commendable about thinking about those who come after you and living in such a way now that when you're long gone, your testimony will still stand and can be appealed to by generations that come after you. That's not a bad thing. But stop and think for a minute of the reality. The reality that looms over all of our efforts and desires is this. The day is coming when you and I are going to be forgotten. Do you even know the name of your great-great-grandfather? I mean, maybe you visited Ancestry.com, and so you know his name, right? Do you know his best friend's name? Do you know what he liked in this world? Do you know the things he aspired to? Do you know what was most important to him? No, because we forget we're here for a moment, and then the moment's gone. The reality is, try as you might, as hard as you may work, you are going to be forgotten. And if you live without proper regard to God, all of your toil will profit you nothing. Songwriters write. It's the same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. And all we do crumbles to the ground but we refuse to see. We don't think about it. We're not honest in our assessments. You know, Tom Brady is 
arguably the greatest quarterback ever to play in the National Football League. He's led his team to four Super Bowl championships. He's received five Most Valuable Player awards. He's been named to the Pro Bowl 11 times. I remember several years ago watching an interview with him on 60 Minutes after he'd won his third Super Bowl. The Associated Press had just named him the Male Athlete of the Year. And during that interview with sort of a, a wistful look in his eye, he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. When the interview, interviewer looked at Brady and said, what's the answer? He responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is all you have? If you're thinking about life simply as it is with no concept of God, without a relationship to the God who created this world, then honesty would cause you to admit what Tom Brady has admitted, what the author of Ecclesiastes admits. Everything you do, all your best efforts, it's vanity. This is the exact same point that Jesus made to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. He said to them, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What Jesus and the preacher in Ecclesiastes are both warning against is living your life exclusively or even primarily for what you can attain in this world. To do so is profitless. It is foolish. Why? Because there is more to your life, there is more to this world than you can measure with your senses or that you can comprehend with your reasoning. God created this world and He created you to live in it. And if you try to live without Him, try as hard as you might, be as diligent, toil as industriously as you can, in the end it will profit you nothing. Listen to this story that Jesus told. Luke chapter 12, we read, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said this, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I'll build larger barns. And there I'll store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, You fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus concludes that story with these words. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself 
and is not rich toward God. What are you living for? What are you laboring for? I mean, what's the point and purpose of you getting up every day? What are you hoping to accomplish? What do you want to see happen with your life? I fear that some of you have never stopped to think beyond your current salary or your next job or your hoped for retirement. And I fear that even if you are successful in attaining your dreams and your goals, that if you're not rich toward God, as Ecclesiastes said, it profits you nothing. Or as Jesus says, you'll be a fool because your wealth has been misplaced. The way to become rich toward God, as Jesus commends, is by receiving from Him the life that He provides in Jesus Christ. As God's eternal Son, the Lord sent Jesus into the world to live under the Son, to take the place of people like you and me, and to experience all the futility of this world. He took sin upon Himself. He represented sinners before God. And in doing so, He embraced God's judgment against our sin. The wrath of God poured out upon Him at Calvary. That is what was going on at the cross. And having done that, He then came back from the dead three days later, never to die again. And has gone into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for the day to return to make everything brand new. And in him, you escape meaninglessness. In him, all of your labor and toil is not without profit. In him, you can come to understand more of the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the God who created this world in the rhythms of this world. And so, Jesus commends becoming one who lives life in Him. How? By trusting Him. By believing the truth. If you're not trusting Jesus Christ, I plead with you today to at least be honest enough to admit that what the book of Ecclesiastes is telling us about the world without God is true. Just admit that. And then let the truth of that begin to sink in on you. Is this really all there is? Is this it? Then what difference does anything make? Why get up and go to work tomorrow? Why even try to love anyone or experience love from anyone? Because everything is without meaning under the sun. But confronted with that truth, let the truth that has been revealed to us in God's Word, the truth that is in Jesus Christ, also dawn upon your thinking. And deal honestly with the fact that God sent His Son into the world. He was crucified. He was raised from the dead, never to die again. Deal with that. And trust this crucified, risen Savior. Believe Him. Set your hope upon Him. Take God at His word that in Christ there's forgiveness. In Christ there's new life. In Christ there is hope that is not 
foundationless, but it is rooted in what Jesus has once and for all time done 2,000 years ago in space and time when He defeated death, sin, hell, and futility. If you're not trusting Christ, my dear friend, I plead with you today. Trust Him. Believe Him. Bow to Him. And you will experience life. Life from your Creator. This is why the Apostle Paul writes what he does at the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians when he contemplates knowing everything that the Ecclesiastes writer has said is true. Life under the sun, no matter how hard you toil, will not profit you anything. But he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Under the sun, without God, your labor is empty, profitless. In Jesus Christ, your labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, you and I must not miss what Ecclesiastes is saying to us. We profess Christ. We know Christ. We have trusted Jesus Christ. We've come to experience God's forgiveness of our sins and the grace and the love that comes to us through Jesus. But what are you living for? Do you live any differently than those who do not know Jesus Christ? Is your life ordered any differently than your unbelieving neighbors? Are your goals, your dreams, your aspirations any different than theirs? How do you talk about your life? How do you talk about your dreams? How do you talk about your hopes? The things you're shooting for? You talk about your toils, and efforts, and labors only in terms of life under the sun? Those who watch you, those who know you, do they get any sense from how you are living, what you are toiling after, that you really believe that without God, all of your toil is profitless? Here's the reality. It is possible to profess to trust Christ while in reality living for this world Relating to this world as if there is nothing more important than this world. This is why Jesus says to us, his followers, in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the, is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Brothers and sisters, we're not immune to that way of thinking. That's why Jesus says to us what he does, calling us to remember that we need grace to think rightly about life, to enjoy the things that he puts in our hands in this world without making those things ultimate for our meaning and purpose and happiness in the world. To receive with all of the gratitude we can muster to the God who created all things for our welfare for our enjoyment without turning those things into something 
that take the place of or compete in our lives with the God who's given them to us. We need to enjoy the world while exerting more effort to be rich toward God than we do to laying up treasures for ourselves in this world. We'll do this when we take God at his word. When we take his word seriously and let his word shape our understanding, our values, our choices, then we will be able to abound in the work of the Lord. Knowing that even though it is true, without God, there's no profit in all our toil. In the Lord, our labor is not in vain. We'll be able to live this life to its fullest. To enjoy everything that God provides for us. Remembering that ultimately what we look for is the world to come. The world that Jesus opened up for us by his life, his death, his resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal to us in your word the truth and you correct our thinking you challenge us, you awaken us in ways that we have grown weary and sleepy. And we ask that this morning, by your Spirit, you would drive your word deep into our understanding, into our affections, so that we will be changed by how we live. I pray for people that are strangers to you. Thank you, Lord, that you have brought us all here together this morning. I ask you to open the eyes of those here this morning who can only see life under the sun. Give them honesty. Give them the kind of honesty we see in Ecclesiastes. And then I pray you'd bring them to the end of themselves and open up to them the truth, the beauty, the life that you have provided for people like us in Jesus Christ, your Son. For we pray in his name.